0: Hello and welcome to episode 199 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with
1: Jason Rabinowitz. How's your week going, Ian?
0: It's a week. It's certainly been a week. We kind of ended last week, began this week with a, a death in the family. So some scrambling of- Ooh, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, thanks. It's my wife's grandmother passed. She was in her mid-90s and lived a very long and very interesting life. Her, My wife's grandfather was in the army from World War II and, until the time he retired either in the army itself or, or working for the army. So they lived, I think my wife's mother said they moved 14 times, wow, as a family. And that doesn't include the times they moved after their daughters were out of the house. So they they lived in places like Italy, Thailand, Germany, the UK, and then all sorts of places in, in the U.S., but she lived a very long and very interesting life, but passed away this week. So we were doing a lot of travel planning and all that fun stuff to get the family down there. And, and I'm I'm manning the fort with the kids. But it's been a good week, and so we made it. I'm here. How are you, sir?
1: <laughs> I'm doing well. In comparison, I've got nothing really going on. Just trying to keep up with the news. It's been a long year. Yeah, it's been a long, it's been year, a long this, year. This week already. It's Wednesday. I'm like
0: almost hesitant to do an episode for what may come.
1: It really does feel like one of those weeks where we record and we hit like stop and then something major is going and to happen. And then something it, can it, happen. It, it so, feels so knock like on that on wood kind of week. Yeah. if that doesn't happen.
0: So later in the program, we're going to go to Gabriel Lee who had an interesting conversation with – the folks at Swedavia, which is the Swedish Airports Authority, about electric and hydrogen propulsion and and how airports are getting ready for that. So That's later in the show, but first, we begin with the big news of this week or one of the big stories of this week over the weekend. The first is the Yeti Airlines Flight 691 that crashed near Pokhara in Nepal. It was an atr five hundred that crashed on approach, I was flying from Kathmandu to Pokhara, and sadly, all on board did not survive. I guess the moments before the crash were captured on camera, and I suppose we should briefly discuss what has been purported to be a video from inside the cabin, though for a variety of reasons, I remain unconvinced that it is a legitimate video. For a variety of reasons, but it has been shared widely against my call to not do that mostly because I don't think it's an accurate video but also because
1: if it's accurate it needs to be seen by crash investigators and that's about and nobody it. else yeah when I came across it on Reddit I did share it with you and some other people with the explicit instructions to not watch it but be aware of it and I would give that recommendation to pretty much everyone else because it's still not been authenticated as, as an actual authentic video and even if it was, don't watch it.
0: That's all we'll say about that. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't need to. But investigators are combing through the wreckage. The flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder have both been recovered in, in good, good condition. condition. So that's that's good notes. news. Yep. So that is good news, and hopefully the investigation does yield fruit as far as the cause of the crash and any learnings we can take. I will discuss the ADSB. Transponder issues that we've encountered with this particular aircraft in the Yeti Airlines fleet. This particular aircraft has had an issue with its transponder for a very long time years, where the transponder is just not reliable. The data coming from the transponder, you know, when taking human eyes to the data, you quickly realize there's something wrong with the transponder. Erroneous altitude and speed data. Coming from the transponder. And unfortunately, the position information stopped before the end of the flight. So we had data coming from the aircraft, including altitude data, speed data, extended modest data, which includes some of the autopilot settings, but not position information for whatever reason for this particular aircraft towards the end of the flight. But that's not unusual with this particular transponder. Of course, it had to be this one because all of the other aircraft in the Eddie Airlines fleet are perfectly fine.
1: Yeah. And to clarify on that, that's not a flight safety issue or anything. It is almost certainly just the ADSB portion of this transponder sending out erroneous information to us as observers on Flight Radar 24 looking at the ADSB data. It looks not great, but I'm sure the information preve- presented to the operators of this aircraft was not impacted in, in the same way because it, it certainly would not have been an airworthy aircraft, especially not for, for years. That's an important point to make. the data coming out of the
0: transponder versus what the pilots are seeing, which is why the recovery of the flight data recorder is so crucial because that will show what the pilots were seeing, what the pilot instrumentation was, versus what the adsB transponder for whatever reason is including a lot of erroneous information so in the blog post that we put together kind of discussing this a little bit what i did was take i did a sense check the altitude values and only included those that were sane looking at historical data from previous flights by the same airline with the same aircraft type on the same route and taking the Autopilot setting, so the the setting from that we 've talked about this before the MCP alt setting, the mode control panel, the altitude setting for for the autopilot, taking those values and then reconstructing the altitude of the aircraft based on those values, excluding some of the values that we were getting, which were nearly one hundred thousand feet in altitude, so clearly no atr is is flying at one hundred thousand feet. And so, taking that and reconstructing the altitude profile gives us a better picture. But because the transponder stopped sending out position information, it becomes a lot harder to kind of correlate things. So again, we wait for the FDR
1: readout. Yeah, definitely interesting. Noteworthy, at least, that the data just stopped being transmitted by the transponder in this aircraft. Because looking back at the history, that doesn't appear to be very typical. Of the transponder, usually there is data from end to end. It's garbage, the data, but you're usually getting something. But on this particular flight, unfortunately, the, the data stream just stopped entirely.
0: Yeah, so it's important to note that the data stream didn't stop. The transponder continued to send data, it just wasn't sending position updates.
1: Yeah, which is definitely noteworthy and strange. Whatever information, we're going to have to wait until the flight data recorders are not recovered at this point, but read, interpreted, and some sort of preliminary report is released. I would not trust any of the information coming out of the media in Nepal right now, because some of the information is quoting officials from the region speculating that there was a mechanical issue with the aircraft of some sort. This is a quote Lifted from a local news report now on Wikipedia that says a civil aviation authority of Nepal spokesperson said the weather was clear according to the preliminary information. The cause of the crash is a technical issue of the plane. There is no information I am aware of to confirm that as being true. There are no reports of any mechanical issues. There were no calls from the pilots of that aircraft to air traffic control that they were having any sort of issues. There was no squat code issued. Nothing really points to there being some sort of technical issue on that aircraft, aside from the outcome, of course. But we're going to have to wait until an official preliminary report is issued because what we're seeing now is just not accurate, unfortunately.
0: So we'll leave that one there for now and return to it once we know a little bit more and a preliminary report is issued. Let's go to New York where a quiet Friday night got – much less quiet and could have been very not good, but quick eyes and quick senses from air traffic controllers and the pilots involved, especially the Delta flight, contributed to it being just a case of hot breaks and delayed flights. So, Jason, I don't know if you want to kind of run through the scenario of what what happened here.
1: I will say that this near- incident actually got, gained a lot more media attention than the the crash of Yeti Airlines in a, in a weird twist of reality here, where the actual crash didn't get all that much attention. But this runway incursion at JFK keeps getting media attention. it', it worked five days beyond, and it's still in mainstream media. The day after the incident, I, I was actually tipped off by the person who did break this news, one way or the other. Uh, NYC on Twitter, who always seems to have inside information, especially on things like this. But somebody told him, "Hey, look at AA106 yesterday," and he told a few people, myself included, to go look at that. I, I was busy, so I didn't have the chance. But the more people looked into it, the more it became clear that there was a, a near catastrophe at JFK. The word Tenerife was thrown around a number of times, maybe correctly, maybe not. But what had happened was Delta 1943 was already on its departure roll on JFK's runway four left as American 106, a 777-200, I believe, unfortunately did not follow the instructions given to them by air traffic control. And instead of turning right on taxiway Kilo to cross over runway 31 left to then get to runway four left. They crossed on, I believe, taxiway Juliet over the active four left runway directly in front of the departing Delta 737 er That Delta 737 was reported, I believe, 104 knots before they slammed on the brakes after air traffic control. Up at JFK Tower, got on frequency and said, cancel takeoff clearance, stop. And fortunately, even though every other protection to prevent something like this from happening failed, the radio frequency was not blocked. And basically, the only thing, one of the only things potentially, Preventing catastrophe here was that the the frequency was open. The Delta pilots heard the air traffic controller tell them to stop, and they did so. And when all is said and done, there was one thousand and twenty eight feet between aircraft while they were both on the runway. We don't really know for sure whether or not there would have been an actual aircraft on aircraft crash here because you, you do need to do the math to say, okay, American one hundred six was traveling at this rate of speed, accelerating from. Eight knots to 15 knots while crossing, while what would happen if the Delta 739 continued to accelerate on its takeoff roll and didn't stop? But those are questions that the NTSB and FAA are going to hopefully provide us as they are both investigating this near catastrophe at JFK. Unfortunately, the CVR the cockpit voice recorder will not provide any answers at least from the american aircraft as they after about 20 minutes probably less than that holding short of runway 31 left they uh, eventually did end up departing JFK in route to london and Modern day cockpit voice recorders are digital but they are still artificially limited in the amount of audio they can record and that's typically about 2 to 4 hours. So that audio is long gone and there are definitely questions that remain today of should that crew have been allowed to depart JFK on that flight? Now that evidence of what happened at least from the cockpit voice recorder's point of view is now gone and erased and is unrecoverable lots of things to be answered by the NTSB and FAA and are uh, definitely anxious to get that report from them
0: it'll be very interesting to see the different focuses of the FAA and the NTSB reports. If the FAA does in fact issue a report, I know we'll get a a report from the NTSB, but it'll be interesting to see what the FAA has to say as well. The interesting thing to me is the FAA kind of opened an investigation pretty much right away, but then it took a few days for the NTSB to get involved. So I'm interested to understand what the deliberative process was for them to announce,
1: or if it was just a delay in announcing it. I think it was probably a delay yeah, that might be the case. in announcing it. Yeah, because our friend Ross Feinstein over on Twitter, who who used to be uh, Corp Comps from American actually, did dig into the NTSB rules and all that, and did note that on occasion of a runway incursion of this nature, the NTSB is supposed to be immediately notified. So There is going to be the question of, was the NTSB notified Immediately as it was supposed to be, or did possibly not all links in the chain work as it was supposed to? And NTSB, I don't know, learned about it on the morning news, which is possible, but I hope not. But there's lots of questions to be answered. Why did multiple layers of protection against this very thing? fail when it basically came down to the air traffic controller in Kennedy Tower seeing this and getting on the radio and preventing it, and the Delta pilots hearing that transmission over their radio and being able to stop on time. Or Other people like you have probably mentioned that, thank goodness, this was a 737-900ER with the probably absolute worst acceleration (laughs) rate in modern jet aviation. So Had this been, I don't know, a 767 or 757, this might be a very, very different story.
0: But also on the flip side, had it been a seven six seven, a triple seven, a seven four seven, or something you know much larger, less so you know the acceleration rate though that becomes a factor. But also the bigger you are, the longer it takes to stop, and so does that become an issue? So like all of the factors that went into this being the world's worst aircraft, the seven three seven nine hundred ER. And a triple seven that, for whatever reason, decided to accelerate as they crossed the runway. For whatever reason, they did not a lot. I mean, they went from like twelve to eighteen to twenty knots by the time they crossed the runway. It mattered. So, but all of that went into making this less close than it could have been. And thankfully, you know, not an incident or not an accident, but rather you know just a runway incursion incident. But definitely looking forward to reading that report. Let's go to Amsterdam for another Delta issue. This time, it was Delta's fault. Oh. Yeah. A Delta A330 landing on runway 22 came up a little short. They landed on the lip of the paved area of the runway, or touched down on the lip of the paved area of the runway, which is about 300 meters or or almost a 1,000 feet short of the touchdown point of the runway. So quite short of where they should have been. So that's another, another investigation and another report that we'll be interested to read, whether or not weather played a factor because the weather wasn't great, but it wasn't the worst we've ever seen it in Amsterdam. So another one to watch and another one to look out for. We're just racking up accident and incident reports today.
1: Yeah, and not applying blame to anyone here. We don't have the full story. Maybe there was some sort of weather condition that forced the the aircraft to land unfavorably like this. But it was interesting to see the initial news come out saying, "Oh, they landed short of the runway by a few meters." Well, no, they, they landed short of like the physical pavement of the runway. They were 300 meters short of the touchdown point. They weren't even close. There should have been all sorts of low energy, low speed, low altitude warnings in, on that aircraft. But again, maybe there was a microburst. We don't know. So we'll have to wait for uh, the Dutch and I guess the maybe the NTSB gets involved here. Somebody will issue a report and we'll find out what happened here. But I think the aircraft is back in service now. I know it was shuttled over to. Detroit on a repositioning flight, but I think it is now back in service, thankfully. And yes, it is today. It is in Paris out of Minneapolis. So it hasn't gone back to, uh, actually, no, the other day went Atlanta to Amsterdam. No, wait, that flight was canceled. Never mind. So it looks like they're keeping it away from Amsterdam for a little bit.
0: There you go. So this particular incident won't generate
1: a report, but it did generate some terrible reporting. Oh, jeez. I know what you're talking about. And this was- You know that Twitter account, Awful Aviation? This should be the pinned tweet forever. It really should. So,
0: Qantas 144 was flying from Auckland to Sydney yesterday, or technically, I guess, today. Time travel. Time travel. times. I hate time zones. And what happened was, is at some point between Auckland and Sydney, the crew received an indication of some sort and shut down the engine shut down one of its engines. This is a 737-800. And with one of the engines shut down, approaching Sydney, they squawked 7700 and initially had declared a mayday. They revised that down to a pan-pan, so less urgency. Just you know, be aware of it. We're going to ask the rescue services, meet the aircraft on the runway because we're going to be coming in with, with a single engine landing, et cetera, et cetera. Not out of the ordinary, in any sense of the word, for this type of procedure.
1: And important to note that the engine did not fail. The engine was apparently shut down by the crew. That uh, there's a right, right. Difference this was there. a
0: a crew decision to shut down the engine. There was no engine failure. The the crew received indications and chose to shut down the engine, and then followed all proper procedures. Then they landed just fine. Photographers because there was a lot of notice here, photographers were able to position themselves to watch the landing. There were helicopters involved. There were photographers on the fence line. The right-hand engine opened up as the CFM 56 does with its thrust reverse, and, and it opened up to allow the reverse thrusters to do their reverse thrusting. Those photos were captured by photographers and sent to their respective wire services and newspapers,
1: and two
0: journalistic outlets, and
1: I think I'm being generous oh, here. you are being real generous. Two tabloids. Let's say tabloids. Call them what they are. Yeah, two tablets. The Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph both claimed
0: that the damage was visible on the aircraft. Oh, my goodness.
1: When, when they saw the reverse thruster open. What do you think they would say when when they saw the door open? Like, oh my God, there's a hole in the side of the plane. Oh, it's just the door. That's exactly what they said. Oh my God, the wing is getting bigger. No, those are the flaps. Yeah, this was (laughs) some of the worst aviation, and I'm air quoting here, reporting I have ever seen. And the worst part is they, they were called out on it, as they should have been. And they just left it up. I think it's still up right now. For them, it's a click thing, which is why I didn't share a link to any of the articles
0: when I posted this on Twitter, because it's stupid. And they're stupid for posting it, but they don't care because it still gets you know clicks and, and it drums up engagement with them and people calling them idiots. They don't care because the more people that click on that story, the more they get paid. It's as simple as that. And it's stupid. I have nothing
1: to add. No, no. Good job.
0: Anyway. Okay, so let's go back to what happened last week with the NOTAM outage. That got solved. And the update is they were trying to update the NOTAM system, and that didn't work. Mm. And then they updated the NOTAM system. Did we ever get confirmation that they actually finished the
1: updates? (laughs) I don't know. We also don't know what happened. As far as I know, we don't know what happened with the Canadian NOTAM system either. Maybe maybe the same faulty USB drive was put in in both national systems. I don't know. Still very suspicious of the whole thing. But what is known. What does stand is that these systems do desperately need to be upgraded to prevent something like this from happening again. Not that modern systems are infallible. Anyone who knows, who's used any sort of modern-day Windows system knows that maybe they should stay on Windows XP. I don't know. But this probably can't be allowed to happen again. Switching over to a bit of business, we've got Lufthansa going it alone
0: for Ita Airways. They're initially bidding for a minority stake by themselves now. They had previously been part of a group bid, but now they're going for it by themselves with the possibility of full ownership later. Lufthansa Group looking to open up an Italian hub. That's worked out marvelously in the past for others, so I'm sure it'll be fine this time.
1: Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? I don't know, but Lufthansa Group seems to be by far the most interested party in an Ita, the late Alitalia it is. There are all sorts of caveats here before they do anything. It is contingent on both parties, citing an MOU, further negotiations. This is on exclusive basis at least. There's all sorts of regulatory and business requirements that need to be met. So, who knows if this goes through, even in this minority stake, let alone full stake. But I'm sure the Italian government would be more than happy to accept some free cash from the Lufthansa group here and make it their problem.
0: <laughs> there you go. And the other thing that we said was going to happen that then actually did happen. Was the 737 MAX has finally flown in China with a Chinese airline for the first time since March 2019. So we talked last week, assuming that it might actually happen. Yeah, we and got one right did. for a change. On
1: schedule. Yeah. It so was a a three-year and 10-month hiatus. And then Bravo-1206 and Bravo-1127 both operated on the same day. And I think they're still going, right? Chugging right along. It wasn't just like a one day. Yeah, let's put these in the fleet and see what happens. No, I think they are. They're they're <laughs> no, both no, going. They're back in. Which is, I'm sure, to the relief of many many people up in Chicago. No, wait, Boeing's not in Chicago anymore. They moved to what was it, Virginia, or, Washington, or Washington, yeah, Maryland, yeah. Or whatever, Washington DC, the greater DMV. I don't know. They're out there somewhere, there but you I'm go. sure many people are happy about this situation. That's great news. So, there are other airlines in China that have the MAX that have not yet put them back in service. So, we'll, we'll see when that happens.
0: There you go. So, we've talked over the past year or two, really, in a variety of ways about what airlines and Manufacturers and to a much lesser extent airports are doing to kind of look towards the next generation of aircraft, how they're going to be powered, whether that's sustainable aviation fuel, electrics, hydrogen, what have you, and We have an interesting conversation now coming up. Our Gabriel Lee recently went behind the scenes at Stockholm's Arlanda Airport. He's got a great video coming up about that, about the airport in particular, and the inner workings of the airport. That's going to be on our YouTube channel soon. But while he was there, he also visited with John Nielsen, who is the strategic manager for electric and hydrogen aircraft at Swedavia, which is the Swedish airports manager. They manage 10 of the largest airports in Sweden, uh, the largest commercial airports in Sweden. And in their conversation, they're going to talk about how the airport and the airports in Sweden generally are planning for electric and hydrogen infrastructure and some of the other things they're doing to get ready for what's coming next. So we'll be right back with their conversation. Stay with us. <music>
2: I'm here at the Swedavia offices just outside Stockholm's Arlanda Airport terminal area with John Nielsen, who's responsible for strategies around electric and hydrogen aviation. John, thanks for chatting with us. I was hoping to hear a little bit about what you are actually working with, what are the sort of tangible things you work with day to day as you gear up for these sort of things. So it's sort of, for many of us, it's a, quite an imaginary thing to think of electric and hydrogen aviation, so it's really interesting to hear from you what you actually do with that.
3: First of all, thanks for having me, and it's always fascinating to speak about the future, and that's what I'm working with. The future, when it comes to our airports, what will happen when we start flying with electric or hydrogen-driven aviation in the future, and what will be the consequences on our airports? Because we at Svedavia, we take care of the airports and we plan the airports on the long term with master plans and development plans. And it's very important for us to understand what we need to build on the airports in the future to make sure that we offer as, as interesting product as possible when it comes to new kinds of aircraft in the future. So my role is basically to form our strategies when it comes to how we should adapt the airports to make sure that we can have those airlines and aircrafts on our airports in the future. And it involves adapting the master plans that we have, adapting the development plans that we have to make sure that we build the right thing at the right time.
2: And that seems like quite a challenging thing to try and do. I would imagine. Is that correct?
3: It is challenging, but at the same time, it's very interesting because I get to be at the forefront of the new technologies, trying to understand what happens, which are the new upcoming uh, types of aircraft. So We're talking about heart aviation in Sweden, but also aviation uh, based in uh, Washington now, in Washington state, and trying to figure out what will be the range of these airplanes, how many passengers they'll have, what will be the needs of these electric airplanes when it comes to charging infrastructure, what will be the needs of the refueling of hydrogen-driven airplanes, will it be straight to jet engines, or will it be with uh, fuel cells in the future and how we need to adapt, especially our apron area and our terminal areas and our gate areas to those new airports, uh, aircrafts. I mean, excuse me, and how our airports need to increase the energy when it comes to electric energy on the airports to be able to have those turnaround times that we have today also with electric aviation. An example that I can give you is um, the new types of commercial electric aviation that I expected to be on the market in 2027, 2028, if you ask aviation or heart uh, aviation. They need about two to three megawatt of power input to charge the batteries if we want them to have a turnaround time of 40 minutes. That is a huge amount of energy for an airport. And we need to figure out how to be able to cope with that high demand output and try to figure out how to deal with that. Should we take it straight from the net, Uh, electric grid, I mean, or should we have other types of um, energy reserves on the airport to be able to to handle that in the future? And that's a fascinating but also very complex way of... Planning the airport that we are not used to goes away from the traditional side of planning airports where we had our fuel depots and we refueled our aircrafts on the stands or remotely and that was it. Now it's a whole new vision, a new approach that we need to figure out.
2: Do you imagine that airports will end up looking quite different from how they do now in terms of how the, how the apron is laid out, or is it not going to be such a fundamental change?
3: Both yes and no. Running an airport is a complicated matter and is an expensive matter, so we would like to have as much flexibility as possible in the future, and we we'll also see that in the future there will be a mix of aircraft, from uh, hydrogen aircrafts, electric aer- aircrafts, and also more conventional aircraft that uh, we have today. And we would love to have our stands to be fully flexible so we can cater all types of aircraft on the stands. So, no, there might be some differences with today, but most of the the time, I think we'll try to strive to have airports that are pretty similar today, because the aircraft shape won't be that much different, because it's been made to be the most efficient possible, and uh, I don't think that will change.
2: Right. I think a lot of people are skeptical that these planes are even realistically coming, that that it's kind of, you mentioned getting negative comments about greenwashing when you talk about plans around these things. Mm. I think that's a common conception, especially Mm. in this area. Mm. How do you counter that?
3: Well, I don't think we will ever be, won't be less curious about traveling in the future, but I think we'll be more curious about traveling, about exchanging with other cultures, about also discovering new places, and also visiting our families, our friends in different countries. So we won't go away from traveling in the future, but we need to travel more responsibly and travel more sustainable approach and I see a great future for electric aviation and hydrogen aviation. Electric aviation, there are some airplanes already today flying full electrics. Those are two-seaters with Pipistrel for example or the Onyx for example and the market that I seen for those shorter range um, point-to-point routes between for example Stockholm and VSP or Umeå and Vasa I do believe there's a market for that in the future, and those electric uh, airplanes will cater for that market. However, for the mid-range airplanes, electric aircraft won't have necessarily the range for that, but it looks more likely than not that hydrogen airplanes, either with fuel cells or straight-to-engine, will be interesting enough to be able to fly those routes, and those routes will cover up to 80% of all the existing routes in the world. Those are those short to mid-range routes, um, less than, I would say, 2,000 kilometers. Those are the majority of the routes in Europe, at least. When it comes to hydrogen, we need to differentiate between the gray hydrogen that you get when you split um, fossil petrol and etc or fossil and natural gas, and also the green hydrogen. So it's important to use green hydrogen when refueling with hydrogen, and green hydrogen you get by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen with green electricity. So it's going to need a new ecosystem for um, sustainable fuels in the future, and also a bigger priority on the sustainable electricity in the future that will be needed to produce that fuel. And maybe more of a local production of electricity that could be used to then produce hydrogen on the airports or in the vicinity of the airports.
2: So a lot needs to happen, but you see it as essentially realistic, that if we can sort of work our way through the various <laughs> the, challenges.
3: The Swedish aviation branch, Svenska Flygbranschen, has put goals to be fully sustainable and carbon neutral for the domestic routes by 2030 and for all the routes by 2045 from Sweden. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it will happen. It's a tough target, but it's also a necessary target. And I don't see a way of not achieving that target. We just have to do it. And we're on a good way of doing it. We have heart aerospace when it comes to electric aviation. We have aviation, but we have also other startups looking at hydrogen aviation. For example, Zero Avia, H2Fly. And then we have Airbus looking at hydrogen aviation as well for beyond 2030, between 2030 and 2045. So there's a lot of interest in that right now. And especially after the pandemic, it's been a renewed interest in looking into alternative fuel sources and sustainable fuel sources for aviation. So I really do believe it's going to happen.
2: Do you get the sense that all the players in the aviation industry are equally feeling the motivation to get this figured out, airlines, manufacturers, airport operators?
3: I see a large interest of the airlines and airlines operators into this. And I also see it's a balancing act because obviously it's a competitive market out there, but there's also a need for the airline industry to be more sustainable. They understand it, they also need to do it because the customers, their customers also care more and more about a sustainable approach and they put a lot of weight into the possibilities of traveling in a sustainable way. So many airplanes, airlines now offer the way to buy fossil-free fuel, sustainable aviation fuel, to offset your travel. And the more that happens, the more production of sustainable fuel will happen and the lower the prices will be also for sustainable fuel. So I see it as an a necessity to encourage that way of uh, traveling, of uh, actually buying a sustainable aviation fuel for your travels.
2: I'm not sure if this is exactly your area, but you mentioned, I think, that Swedavia pays for half the cost of sustainable aviation fuels? Is that right? When um, airlines... It's not
3: exactly my area, so I might not be know exactly the details around that. But Swedavia, first of all, we replace all the fuel we use for travels within the company with sustainable aviation fuel on a one-to-one basis. And then we also have incentive programs for airlines when they're refueling on our airports to refuel with sustainable aviation fuel if they want to. And we... I'm not sure exactly the proportion, but we do pay a part of the price difference compared to fossil fuel to help them on the way.
2: Can you tell me about what you mentioned about how you see the airport as an energy hub for the future?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We see in the future that energy, when it comes to... Producing energy more locally will be very interesting in the future, both for the airport for running our own operations. It takes a lot of electricity to run an airport, but also for the aircrafts on the airport. Especially if we have electric aircrafts on the airport, we would love to be able to provide sufficient electricity on the airport. And also to provide maybe locally produced hydrogen on our airports. So we are looking into the possibilities of Producing electricity on airports. There's airports already around Europe that are producing electricity with solar panels, and this is a path Sudavia so also would love to go on. See if this possibility is with the areas that we have on airports that are pretty big. Uh, just think about all the parking areas, all building roofs that we have, and also green areas around the runways and the taxiways, far enough from um, um, equipment, obviously we could use that for solar panels and produce a lot of electricity on the airports that we can then use to either recharge power banks or battery banks, so we can peak shave, like we say, if we have a peak energy demand in the morning or in the evening when we have most of our traffic, we can peak shave that with energy that is stored in big battery packs, or we can split water into hydrogen and use the hydrogen to run either fuel cells on the airport where we can take the excess heat that they generate to warm up buildings and electricity back into the system, or to produce hydrogen that can be used by the aircraft also in the future. So it's a vision we have. We're still in the starting phase of trying to figure out that vision, but it's something that we think will be the future of the airports.
2: Great. Would you say that you have an exciting job?
3: I have a fantastic job, I wouldn't even call it a job, it's a hobby for me. I love airplanes, I love aircrafts, I love transport planning, so for me coming to work and working with the future every day, I can't say I'm working, I'm just doing what I want to do, basically. So right. it's fantastic.
2: Nice. Well, thanks very much for, for chatting, it's fascinating to see you, and I wish you the best of luck. I want to see all this stuff come to Thank fruition. Thank
3: you. Well, so. come back in a couple of years and we'll be able to show you in real life what the infrastructure is about.
0: Welcome back. I thought that was an interesting introduction into kind of what airports are going to have to do to support all of these possibly different types of powered aircraft. I mean, we've talked about SAF and and dealing with that as fueling aircraft, but thinking even further than that, where do you get all the electricity for electric aircraft? Where do you get all of the hydrogen for hydrogen-powered aircraft? And I think that's gonna be a really interesting, interesting conversation moving forward, especially as we move beyond kind of Single airport managers into airports that are just kind of on their own rather than have a national management.
1: Yeah, we were actually talking about this a bit privately today about the charging of electric aircraft. And if it's complicated for an airport the size of Stockholm or with the support of corporate backing and major airlines, how in the world little airports, little privately run airports that may end up on the receiving end of some of these electric aircraft? How in the world are they going to end up building out the infrastructure to support any of this, I guess, be it hydrogen or electric? That is such a big question I have that I I don't really think has any answers right now. But it is very interesting to hear about what an airport like Stockholm, Orlando is planning, or at least thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely a big consideration, especially where state support isn't necessarily as forthcoming. So, speaking of state support, NASA today awarded Boeing the contract, the partnership for the transonic truss braced wing demonstrator or concept. So, NASA is going to contribute 425 million and 725 million of the expected cost will come from industry including Boeing and its partners. The goal is to build two demonstrator aircraft. One is roughly a slightly 737 ish sized aircraft, slightly smaller. And then on the back of that demonstrator aircraft, a slightly larger 757 sized aircraft will be developed after validation. So they're going to be VS1 and VS2. And the idea here is that they're looking for roughly 30%. Increased efficiency in fuel consumption and emissions reductions relative to what they say is today's most efficient single aisle aircraft. So, think your 737 MAX, your A320 NEO. And this particular wing, it's longer, it's thinner, it's more swept, and then it's braced by a diagonal truss. So, think normal aircraft, longer wings thinner wings, and then a truss that comes out to about the center point of the wing supporting it. And Then in this particular instance, they have a T-tail for the aircraft, which will be interesting to see. And I cannot wait to see this thing fly in the late 2020s.
1: Yes. This is exactly the outcome that John Ostrower had discussed with us several episodes ago where why should Boeing go out on its own, develop a middle-of-the-market aircraft or the next version of the 737 when they could get the US government and NASA to pay for two-thirds of it or a third of it without having to do it on their own. I mean, it makes sense. The renderings that they put out today don't make any sense because there is no way that one of these (laughs) aircraft Is 737 size comparable and holds 100 people. And then the second aircraft is more 757 and holds 200 passengers because the renderings that they look, you know, that meme, that office meme where Pam's holding up two pictures and they say, Corporate, why well, <laughs> not you tell the difference? And there is no yes, difference. That's exactly they're the same they're thing. They look uh, well almost, almost the same.
0: Jason, one of them
1: says VS1 and one of them clearly says VS2. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But it looks like these renderings were tossed together by an intern at the 11th hour or something like that. Very strange for a program that's going to be donating nearly half a billion dollars to the effort. But very, very early days, very exciting to see where this goes. I wish Boeing and NASA and whoever else is vested in this as well. Very interesting again, to see the difference between where Boeing is heading and where Airbus is heading, where Airbus is spearheading much of this development on its own and is looking towards alternate propulsion methods such as electric or hydrogen really more so these days, whereas Airbus or Boeing on the other hand is really, let's let the government help us out with some of this – well, a lot of this money to make – efficiency gains on existing propulsion systems because I didn't see anything here maybe I missed it about this being an electric or hydrogen powered aircraft or anything so it's really more about aerodynamically improving existing propulsion systems which is right. certainly a way to go about doing it because Boeing has certainly been in sustainable aviation fuel camp moving forward which I hope is not the permanent answer moving forward it shouldn't be but if it is, Boeing seems to be on the right path. I mean, I think this is a case of why not both?
0: Why not, you know, if you can improve the aerodynamics of the aircraft and increase efficiency by 30%, and you can also use that design in a green hydrogen powered aircraft, that seems great to me. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully all of these things start to really pick up speed or not necessarily pick up speed, but pick up kind of roll up into larger projects so that you end up with an aircraft that can fly sustainably and not just less. I mean, because when we talk about sustainably aviation fuel, most of it's not sustainable. I mean, it really all depends on the feedstocks. And so the question becomes, you know, yes, it's less bad, but still it's not sustainable. And so, really getting to that where sustainable means sustainable and not just a fancy word for it's less bad than what we were doing before or what we're doing now.
1: So, yeah, I I think this is good. and, And hopefully, we see more of it. In 10 years, maybe we can merge whatever Boeing comes up with with whatever Airbus comes up with and make one combined aircraft and, you know, synergies and whatnot. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, that's not. That's not going to work. I don't think those two will work together anytime soon. Sorry. For all, all of the manner of reasons. So yeah, an
0: interesting first step, an interesting award today, and certainly looking forward to seeing where it takes us and where things go. Looking to see these fly by the late 2020s for inclusion in the 2030s for kind of the next generation of aircraft that Boeing produces. To close the show, we've got I feel like bits and bobs, but worth mentioning. No surprise here, Delta exercising options for 12 A22300s. It's a great aircraft for Delta and for, I think, most airlines that are operating it. They've been very pleased. So why not pick up some more? And this one, I think, deserves a little discussion because Airlines for America, which is the trade organization that represents US based airlines, is petitioning for an extension of the slot waivers into China and Japan. China recently reopened to flights but those are not quite going yet and Japan also recently reopened to flights and those are not going as much as we would have expected them to, mostly because of the kind of getting things going phase where people are still, I think, a little apprehensive about booking and navigating what they need to do. Not and me. Let's go. No and, let's go. I need a- <laughs> And Jason's already in Japan. I need more award availability, it's specifically. So let's go with that. I mean, don't we all? But it'll be interesting to see whether or not this – particular waiver is extended or they say no you need to start operating these flights because the airlines are arguing we can't make money on these flights yet there just isn't enough demand given the situation to meet all of the slot requirements that we have so it'll be interesting to see what the authorities then say about continuing on with the slot waiver so we'll we'll keep an eye on that and see how things go and that brings us to the end of the episode, episode 199.
1: Jason, episode 200 coming up. It's going to be a fantastic episode.
0: It's yeah, going to be a huge
2: we, we've episode. we've got, it's got be-
1: with – honestly, we've got nothing planned. So let's hope there's a lot of good, interesting, wholesome, friendly, happy news that happens in the next seven days because we've got nothing planned. We don't necessarily
0: have anything planned yet, but if all goes according to plan, it will be a very good episode. They're it really all depends very on good episodes
1: and they're all very good episodes. Yes.
0: <laughs> it really depends on a particular schedule being kept that we can discuss next week and we hope to have a great show for you next Friday. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this show, this particular episode and if you did or if you didn't, leave us a rating review or send us an email, podcast at fr24.com. Last week, we got some interesting notes about my love or lack thereof for the 787-8. But if you do have a comment about anything that happened in the show, if you want us to talk about something, please email us, podcast at fr24.com. And in the meantime, we hope you have a great week. And thank you so much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik
1: here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.